Well, good morning. I trust all of you had a wonderful Christmas. There is a hymn which we often sing in our worship service that goes like this. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. For those of us who preach the word, there is no more satisfying topic than the person and works of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. And though each book of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, contain aspects of the Savior's person, works, and words, there is nevertheless a constant longing to speak specifically of him and his glory. So I have decided to spend an extra Sunday doing just that, speaking about Christ and his entrance into this world. Last week we had a very short message concerning his birth during our Christmas service, but I felt that I could not do justice to that topic in such a short time. Thus, I have decided to cover it in a little more detail this morning. We can, if you like, call this sermon Christmas Message Part 2. Our ex extended text for this morning will come from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me now to Luke chapter 2, 1 to 20. But before we begin our sermon, let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful to be here again this morning to once again open the sacred pages of thy holy script and to see our blessed Savior and his entrance into this sin-ruined world and to see his beauty as revealed within this text before us this morning. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God will be able to enlighten our understanding of this text and draw us to him in all his beauty and his glory. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Recorded here for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, is one of the most significant events in all of man's history. It is second only to the crucifixion of our blessed Savior. The birth of the Lord Jesus has profoundly affected the course of all future events and has effect, affected the destiny of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived or has yet to be born. The same can never be said of any other set of events. But tragically, much of the world still lies in darkness 
and oblivion to the significance and relevance of this marvelous event. The effect of the birth of Christ has been permanently stamped on the pages of history and will continue to bear more and more importance into the future as we draw closer to the close of time. For centuries, all time has been measured from the year of his birth as B.C. before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. No rational person, regardless of his or her religious persuasion, can deny the importance that the birth of Christ has brought to man's history. How each of us interprets the relevance of this event personally is of paramount importance. For the correct understanding of his birth will lead to a personal and living relationship with the God of this universe. On the other hand, a misunderstanding of this event will lead one to a disastrous end in a Christless eternity. Sadly enough, many even so-called Christians today deny the account of the Holy Scriptures, claiming that their disbelief or belief in miraculous birth of the Savior does not somehow affect their faith or their Christianity. And oh, how much more could a person be disillusioned than that? For how one sees this event will directly affect how one views the crucifixion of our Savior and their individual response to it. And so with these thoughts in mind, let's turn to our main text, Luke 2, 1 to 20. And the first point in the message this morning I've entitled, The Birth of Christ Was a Sovereign Event. It was a sovereign event. It was not by accident or coincidence that Christ our Lord came into this world the way he did, when he did, or where he did. From eternity past, it had been ordained of God that at just the right time in history, God would send his Son to this earth to be born of a virgin, made under the law to redeem the lost. The Apostle Paul writes this very fact in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In the Old Testament, the prophets of old had testified of his birth centuries before it occurred. The prophet Isaiah, some 742 years before Christ's actual birth, wrote the following under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name 
Emmanuel. Now I'm going to make an aside here. There are some 300 perversions of the Bible in the English language on the market today. And they say that a young woman, a maiden, shall conceive. There is nothing miraculous about a young woman, married or unmarried, conceiving a baby. But it is a miracle if a virgin conceives a child. Also, the Old Testament prophet Micah, some 710 years before the birth of Christ, foretold of the location of his birth, that it would be in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It can be no doubt that this is the Christ that has been prophesied. For there is no one that lasted or existed in eternity past and still exists. Then in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2 verse 13 we read how the angel of the Lord came to Joseph a second time in a dream. This time to warn him to take Mary and the baby Jesus and flee to Egypt to escape the planned slaughter orchestrated by King Herod. This too had been prophesied centuries earlier by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Then, when it was safe to come back, God called Joseph back to Nazareth out of Egypt. This again was earlier prophesied by Hosea in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child... Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. There can be no reasonable doubt upon the serious examination that the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem at that particular time was nothing short of divine decree, a sovereign act of God himself. But not only was the birth of Jesus Christ a sovereign event, but it was also a supernatural event, which brings us to our second point in the message this morning. Again, we turn to the sacred pages of Holy Script and read that this was no ordinary birth and that this child that was to be born, who would be called Jesus, was no ordinary child. His conception was a miraculous conception. Matthew's account explains it this way in Matthew 1, 18 to 20. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, 
she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, here in scripture, when it says that Mary was a spouse to Joseph, she was engaged. They were not yet married. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. When he found out that his fiancée was pregnant, he came to the only conclusion that a natural man could, that she had had an affair. And because of his love for her, he was going to divorce her privately and not make a spectacle of it. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Well, friends, do we grasp the significance of this miraculous supernatural birth? Never before has any child been brought into this life in such a manner, nor ever will be. There could not be any other way of his being born. For had he been born of a sinful father, he would have possessed a sinful nature. But his conception was of the Holy Ghost, thus rendering him a sinless nature. He was born of a woman so that he might be human. Thus God, the Son, becomes man as well. Fully God and fully man at the same time. A concept that is both too wonderful and too frightening to understand. God manifest in the flesh. God and man united in one person, never again to be separated. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. Imagine, if you will, the dilemma faced by Joseph when he discovered that his wife-to-be was with child, was someone else's child. Many would have thrust her away in anger and have put her to shame openly. But Joseph was of a more honorable mind, a humble man, with a gracious spirit who sought to put her away quietly, privately, protecting her honor, though he thought her to be guilty. And I'm certain that in his state of deep despair and turmoil that he prayed, seeking guidance from heaven concerning this present dilemma. And guidance he received. For we read in Matthew one twenty that God sent his angel to guide and to comfort Joseph through all of this, assuring him that Mary had not sinned and that this child was indeed conceived of the Holy Ghost. Unfortunately, today, many who call themselves Christians deny the miraculous birth of our Savior. But his birth is one of the foundational stones of the Christian faith. It goes hand in hand with the companion truth of his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Those who deny the one truth generally deny the second truth. 
To deny either is to repudiate the truth of the gospel, without which there is absolutely no hope for a lost world. But there were other manifestations of the supernatural as well. We read again in Matthew's gospel account in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. In verses 9 to 11. When they heard the king, that is Herod, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. God used a star to light the way for the wise men who came from the east. It had been in the sky for a long time, guiding them to Jerusalem. But please notice that Christ was born in Bethlehem. So why were they led to Jerusalem and to King Herod of all people? We find in Scripture again the answer to that question. Herod summoned all the chief priests and scribes who knew the Old Testament prophecies to reveal the location of his birth. Ironically, it was Herod himself who sent the wise men to Bethlehem to find the child. When they departed from Herod, they once again spotted the star and followed it. When they saw it, they rejoiced, say the scriptures, for it led them to where the young child was. Again, many try to explain away the star of Bethlehem, some say it was a meteor, meteor that temporarily lit up the sky. But it would have had to have been a very wise and a slow-moving meteor. <laughs> Others have reasoned that it might have been certain planets aligned in such and such a path that lit the way. But to the wise and to the seekers of truth, the star was God's supernatural intervention in the affairs of men to guide their way by his divine presence and his light. Psalm 32, 8 reminds us, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. But that was not all. There were other supernatural manifestations surrounding the birth of Jesus, our Savior. The news of his birth was announced to the shepherds abiding in the field who were keeping watch over their flocks by night by the very angels of heaven. In Luke chapter 2, 9 to 14, we read, 
And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a marvelous and awesome sight that must have been. The very angels of heaven manifested before the shepherd's own eyes, announcing the good news. Is it any wonder they were frightened at the sight and had to be told, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Oh, see, dear friends, how the pages of Holy Script are ripe with the goodness and the kindness of God. God's peace and goodwill toward men is supernaturally announced through his angels in the sending of the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. Yes, the birth of Jesus Christ was indeed a supernatural event as well. And finally, the birth of Jesus Christ was a significant event. It was not only significant to the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, but it is most significant to us today. All too many have unfortunately misunderstood the purpose of Christ's incarnation and as a result have made a very superficial response to it, not realizing that one's eternal soul is at stake. Our text says in Luke 2:11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then in Matthew 1:21, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. First, and foremost, we must recognize our most urgent need. That is the forgiveness of all our sins. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, how could that be? Romans 5.12 again explains, Wherefore, as by one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There is no denying the fact that everyone dies. Death is a reality of life. Death is universal. All die. Innocent infants, moral people, religious people, as well as the vile, 
and the most wicked of mankind. And for a universal effect, there must be a universal cause. And that universal cause is sin. But even this universal cause must have had a cause or a beginning. And that original cause was Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. And because of Adam's disobedience, sin entered the human race and all mankind became tainted or sinful or sinners, separated from God. And God, who is holy and pure and righteous and just, cannot tolerate sin in his holy presence. Therefore, says the Bible, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. According to the Bible, the just penalty for sin is death, and death is not only physical, but it is also spiritual, in that it will be an eternal separation from God in a hell of suffering and remorse. Because of God's absolute holiness and justice, he cannot condone our sin or waive the just penalty that divine justice must impose. The only way in which God could spare us that penalty was to bear it himself. And that is precisely what God did in his infinite love for mankind. He sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, his Son. Man's most desperate need today is the same as it was thousands of years ago, a Savior, one who would meet all the holy requirements of God and be both willing and be able to pay the price for the sins of the entire world. That is why. God sent his eternal son into this world to be born of a woman so that he would be human and could taste death for every man. But in order to bypass the conveyance of the sin nature, he was conceived of the Holy Ghost. He did not have a natural conception. It was a supernatural birth thereby making him pure, sinless, holy, and undefiled. Jesus was the perfect man. That is why the Apostle John could write in 1 John chapter 3, 5 about the Son of Man, that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Because he did not have an earthly father, he did not have the sin nature. But Jesus Christ was also very God. There was never a time in eternity past that Jesus Christ did not exist. He always existed. He was always God. He was the creator of all things in this universe. The Bible says in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. That is, he's always existed before anything was ever created. And he is all he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And as I explained earlier on, this means that Christ holds everything together. All he needs to do is let go, and the earth will explode in fervent heat, and the planets disappear, etc., etc. This little child of Bethlehem was the Savior of the world, for he was God manifested in the flesh. The Savior had to be both God and man at the same time. If he were not man, he could not die. If he were not God, he could not reveal to the lost mankind the truthfulness of man's lost estate and who God really is and what God demands of us. No one has ever seen God face to face except the eternal Son of God himself. And therefore, he and he alone was able to reveal the Father. And because his home was in heaven, he could truthfully reveal its beauties and its essence. And he alone knew its whereabouts and how to get there and bring others with him. Yes, this little child of Bethlehem was the very Son of God himself. But he was also called the Son of David and the King of the Jews. That was his royal name. He was a descendant of King David and the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. When the wise men came to King Herod, inquiring of Jesus' birth, they called him the King of the Jews. In Matthew 2.2, 2. when Pilate crucified Jesus at Calvary, he had written on his cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, Matthew 27.37. There is a day coming when this same Jesus will return to this sin-ruined earth with all of his redeemed and will establish his millennial kingdom on this earth. But first, this little child of Bethlehem would have to grow up and then go to the cross of Calvary to die, to take upon himself the sins of the entire world and to be punished for them in your place and in my place. He would suffer God's just punishment for sin by offering up himself as the only sacrifice acceptable to a holy and a righteous God. He would die, be buried, and after three days rise again, later returning to heaven to be seated on the right hand of God the Father where he is right now. And dearly beloved, contrary to how the Catholic Church teaches, Christ does not sacrifice himself over and over and over again at the supper or communion table. He is seated on the right hand of God the Father. And when he leaves that throne, it will be to call his own back home. 
And because of that sacrifice on Calvary's cross, because Jesus Christ shed his perfect, pure and sinless blood for our sins, we can rejoice today for the forgiveness of our sins and enjoy wonderful fellowship with God, our Savior. And because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross, we can now have peace with God and full access to the throne of grace at any time. Oh, how God loves us. Oh, how he loves the sinner, that he would give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But dear friends, the account of the birth of Christ is so much more than just a wonderful story about the first Christmas and about giving. It is a pivotal piece to the whole gospel of salvation. If Jesus Christ were not born in exactly the fashion in which the scriptures declare it, then we would be today without hope and without a Savior. We would still be lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. But praise be to God, we do have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he does save his people from their sins. I trust that everyone here this morning has received him as their personal Savior. But if perchance there is even but one who has not done so yet, I urge you to receive him this morning while there is yet time. He loves you, and he does want to save you. Before we conclude, I wonder if we could turn to number 373 in the Red Hymn Books and sing Just As I Am. 373, please.